Ladies and gentlemen, you have made it to Brave to the Bone podcast, where we explore the dynamics of human courage in its most dynamic form, personal transformation. I am a nurse who left traditional Western medicine to explore the vast potential of healing that exists in our natural world. From psychic healers to psychedelic wellness, this is your source to your own human potential. This episode is brought to you by TanyaGilbert.com, where there are classes being offered and one-on-one work and resources available to you. Also, we have almost 40,000 followers over at TikTok. Please look at Bones of a Nurse, where we share content about psychedelic wellness, psychedelic research, and all the fun history that you just can't forget about. Enjoy. This is your host, Tanya Gilbert. I am honored to introduce to you today, Joseph Frank, who is also known as the Mushroom Guru. He's on the political forefront in Oregon and speaks today about the disparities and the needs as we go forward in the psilocybin industry and political movement. He is well known for his amazing growing techniques, his incredibly giving heart to vets and people suffering with PTSD. He accidentally became a trip sitter in Switzerland, and it changed his life forever. Joe has an incredible story about his own particular healing with psilocybin and watching the healing of others. This is an important episode to keep mindful about disparity in psilocybin and the needs to heal our world. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, Joe. I am so honored to have the actual mushroom guru of Oregon come on the show, and you have so many really important things to share with us today. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and the work you do now? My name is Joseph. Generally, go on most social media as um, mushroom guru. I many years of experience with psychedelics. I have some experience in cultivation as well as trip sitting. I have spent a couple of years working in the legal psilocybin industry, including spending 2020 in Jamaica, uh, working for a startup there, creating cultivation operations for them. Um, I also helped consult with their retreat program, and I also consulted on the Marley One brand as well. Now I'm here in Oregon, preparing for the Prop 109 rollout, um, having a little bit of interaction here with other cultivators, trying to get a co-op started and, you know, trying to get ready for for what's coming. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What's coming in Oregon and what Prop 109 is? Absolutely. So there were actually two props that came out simultaneously, which was Prop 109 and Prop 110. Uh, Prop 110 more or less decriminalizes all possession of criminal drugs. So basically anybody who is carrying a a personal amount of pretty much any drug isn't going to get arrested, but would rather than have them directed towards finding them help a more medical approach to that. So uh, then we have Prop 109. So Prop 109 is getting into plant medicines and the use of psilocybin for therapeutic use. What it's looking like now is that Oregon is going to be doing a basically a recreational, a sort of observed recreational, where people aren't going to be doing a medical program, but it's going to be more recreational use that has medical professionals and trained professionals watching over them to make sure that it's done right and everybody stays healthy. 
And how are you staying organized and involved with the community who are working to pursue Prop 109 over there? So there are a number of groups here. They're all fairly informal, but there's a lot of people, David Bronner and a few others who are really invested in um, having this become a reality um, that uh, many people, including yourself, know that there's a lot of addiction in our country today and all over the world. And that these plant medicines, ibogaine and psilocybin and others are really showing great strides in helping people treat these. And so most people here are very invested in in that in one way or another. And they see this industry as being a great sort of answer to that. And they're helping to push this forward. I'm so excited for the potential for our world of healing. And, and I know you are. And um, would you mind taking us back to where you got started and how this became a passion of yours? Were you passionate right away in the beginning, or did it take a while as you became an adult? Um, well, I, I definitely was passionate about psychedelics from my initial use. I've always loved them throughout my life. I've uh, never had, I guess, what people call a bad trip, which kind of makes me unique, I guess. But I think it's just the, the relationship I have with these um, psychedelics that I really enjoy. Some of the first experiences I had was um, I took a, a trip to Europe after high school. I was very lucky to be able to have that opportunity. I first tried mushrooms in Amsterdam. I was able to take some philosopher's stones and go to the Van Gogh Museum and see the haystacks. And it was just a very transformative experience. It was so beautiful and cultural and mind evoking, thought evoking. So it was a great experience. And then immediately afterwards, being able to go with a group of friends to go get you know Chinese food in the canals. And it was just such a, a positive, uplifting, amazing experience. So uh, after that, I then discovered a youth hostel in Interlaken, in Switzerland, which was at that time the adventure sport capital of Europe. And they had also decriminalized magic mushrooms. Um, and so there was a bunch of local farmers who are now growing these mushrooms as a cash crop. And they were available in most sort of stores. You could just go and buy them. And so I actually would meet probably about a hundred people, new people almost every single day when I was working at this youth hostel. And many of them were very interested in psychedelics like me. And so I basically would guide them to where these mushrooms were. We would get them together. And because I had already been there for a substantial amount of time, I'm like, oh yeah, no, I know what to do. And we would get, you know, our pack of food and I would have, you know, some stuff already set up and we would go for a hike through the Swiss Alps, which was I mean, the, one of the most beautiful, amazing experiences ever. You've got these gorgeous mountains and these beautiful, perfectly manicured forests. On top of that, every, you know, I think maybe kilometer or so, there are these beautiful uh, spigots that just have pure mountain water coming out of them. So it made it for a very easy and, and very happy and uplifting experience so that pretty much everybody who went on it had an amazing time. In the end, we would finish at my favorite overlook of the Heart of Klum Mountain, and we would have a little barbecue, and it was it was just, a, I, I can't remember any of them having a bad experience, so. You did this natural trip-sitting and encouraging set and setting even before you had researched about it. It was almost an intuitive, human, compassionate way of taking care of people for that journey without even having the experience, really. Yeah, this is back in circa 2000. So this was before set and setting was even an idea. Um, so yeah, that was like, I, I didn't even call it trip sitting back then. I was just meeting new people and having fun. And because I knew this great sort of 
routine for us to go through, I sort of just fell backwards into the the trip sitter role. Wow, that's amazing. That's great. Yeah, and I love that. And the mushroom seems to teach you how to be. And the more education, the better, really, because, you know, a lot of people's first time experiences are bad trips because they're at parties or it's just really weird. But to be at the Swiss Alps, I just, I can't, I can't imagine it. So then what happened after that? Where did you go next? Because I had traveled through Europe several times, I had a large amount of debt and uh, the real world sort of comes back in. I needed to sort of get a real job and went to go work for uh, a couple different companies. I you know, worked in the IT field for a while and sort of drifted away from that whole scene and the whole thing in general. Back in about 2015, 2016, I was going through some pretty severe depression, some really hard times. And I started reading articles about how psilocybin was being used to treat depression and how it had these amazing effects with trauma and uh, drug-resistant depression. And so um, I began experimenting with it myself again. I learned how to grow, you know, just enough for myself using this old PF tech sort of thing. And in the end, I just kept researching it because I'm an autodidact. I love to learn and, and find new things. And so I discovered a monotub technique and immediately went from barely making just enough for myself to all of a sudden having, you know, ounces and ounces, just way more than I knew what to do with. So I started trying to find people to give it away um, because I wasn't really interested in becoming a drug dealer. I managed to connect with some veterans and started a, a little community, a group here. And so I've been giving it away to them for free. And that got me into connection with this startup that then took me to Jamaica. And I learned to grow in a very difficult environment down there. Not a lot of people have been successful trying to grow in Jamaica. It's an extremely humid and bacterial rich environment. And most people just end up cultivating lipstick mold. So it was a very enriching and educating experience. I learned a lot about startups and, and all of that doing the whole thing. But really what the experience brought to my eyes was how this is becoming a treatment of luxury, that there is a great opportunity here to treat a huge number of people in our country that, you know, even with veterans alone, there are thousands of suicides every year. And not all of these people can afford to spend seven to $10,000 to come down to Jamaica for a week to do three trips and then immediately get shot back to the United States. So I realized that there was a great disparity between the people who are going to need this treatment and um, the people who are going to provide it and how much they're going to charge for it. That was kind of my, became my, my more pressing concern recently. I really appreciate that. You know, in Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, he talks about that we actually have more deaths in the United States from suicides than we do from breast cancer and also from automobile accidents. And what's happening now with the pharmaceutical companies is that they are not producing more CNS drugs because they're just not easy to approve. They don't work that well. So it's even more reason to, you know, and the other thing that he says in that book is that only a small percentage of those suicide deaths ever had treatment of pharmaceuticals or got help at all. So I I see the problem and the problem of disparity even reaches beyond what's happening in the arena of mental health. We have disparity just so severely in our world of access and communication. So are you a part of any groups that specific with working with disparity in where you are? 
there's one group that I'm sort of uh, beginning to work with a little bit right now. It's mindlumen.org. They're actually a company that is working to create a network for uh, trip sitters and clients and the uh, the group around those businesses in general. Um, they're building it around a uh, decentralized autonomous organization or a DAO and uh, hoping to provide tokens called Lumens that we're going to allow people to. Uh, so if, if somebody doesn't have the money to go for a, a retreat, and sometimes I think they're I've heard the number about $1,000 for a single treatment. If they don't have that money, that we can supplement that money to the trip sitter with lumens so that you basically have the ability to pay for full. And then, you know, we if you can't pay for full, we can help make that up. And that way, the, the trip sitter still gets rewarded because they're getting the lumens and then those tokens have a cash value or they can be used for other other things within the network. That's amazing. Can you tell me about the feedback that you've got from the vets that you've worked with as far as you said you started providing for them? Like, how did that go? That's easily been one of the most rewarding parts of my career that you see people who are kind of, they have no idea what to do. They're on the edge. They have major trauma, things that, you know, most people can't really relate to. And sometimes suicidal ideation is, you know, is part of that. And what really impacts me is not just their issues, but the, the, the impact on their families, on their spouses and children, that when they do start these treatments, that it's really transformative for them, that they are all of a sudden able to spend time with their kids, that they're able to go outside their house again, that their you know, spouses have their partners back. It, it can be sometimes temporary, and unless it's paired with the proper uh, integration or talk therapy treatment, that sort of thing, it does tend to be ineffective on the long term, but in short term, it helps people get off the ledge and um, having somebody tell you that you saved their life is really what makes this worth it <laughs> to me at least. And so you had the same experience yourself when you were in a place of depression. Is that true? Absolutely. I had found myself very alone and um, I don't really relate well to my family. We're not at all close. And so I didn't have anyone to turn to. I had no one who would help me and I felt very alone. And um, when I discovered mushrooms, I not only discovered a treatment, but I also managed to find other people to be in my circle and to be my family and friends. And so they not only helped me heal, but that healing then helped me rebuild uh, my, my life and my community. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. I just went to the Las Vegas Psychedelic Conference, Meet Delic, and yeah. there were the Heroic Hearts Project. They work with vets. They're a cool organization. And I think what they do is they gather the vets that are interested in California. And then they, for the weekend, they drive them all over the border so that they can um, work with them legally. So, mm -hmm. you know, people are definitely finding ways. Disparity is definitely an issue. We're looking at, in Oregon, I think something like 4,000 therapists are going to be treating in the next 2022. We're not going to have enough people who are properly trained um, is my biggest concern that right now there's maps. There's a few other 
organizations that are just gearing up to start training people. Can we talk about that for a second? Because I know that there's a lot offered and I was studying with a doctor and the doctor was like, don't get certified until you you're asked to. And I had interviewed Timothy Leary's son, Zach Leary. He's yeah. doing a program. There's some great programs that would be a lot of fun, but um, there's Fluence, which is on the East Coast, which mm-hmm. is the second most reputable school right now for integration. And then CIIS in San Francisco. Are those on the list? of what they're looking at? It's difficult to say right now. Um, I, I, I think we're still, as far as the Prop 109 board is concerned, I think they're still discussing that and figuring out exactly what requirements are going to be necessary. I, I am of an unpopular belief, unpopular belief that I don't really think that everyone involved, especially the trip sitters themselves, need nearly as much training as they're putting themselves forward. I see a lot of these programs where they need to be, you know, a thousand, you know, a hundred hours, sorry, a hundred hours and $5,000, I think is the, is the maps model. And I don't know a lot of people who are going to be able to spend that money and give up that giant chunk of their life. That could be, you know, anywhere from three to, to six weeks, then to take that time. And then even then, when we have that program, say that you have, eight sessions in a year, if you're going to take six weeks to train these people and you can do 50 people at a time, you're not going to have nearly enough people trained to do trip sitting for all the people who are going to be coming to Oregon for, for these treatments that, that a lot of people are looking at just the number of people who voted yes on Prop 109 here and trying to figure out the calculations of how many trip sitters are going to be required. But there's, there's going to be way more people that because Oregon's the first one who is putting this legal structure in place that's that's going to allow people to legally come here and get this treatment without having to worry about the getting arrested i think we're going to become a huge wellness and you know therapy destination in this country at least for the first couple of years until other states are able to roll out their own programs i know california is working on a program right now so yeah you know we're as california i'll speak for california as a whole we are very proud of you oregon Yeah. (laughs) So it does, it sounds like there are a lot of issues that we're going to face and probably some that we may not even know. And unfortunately, we're at a place where the research can't even go as fast as it needs to be because of the laws. So it's going to be an interesting blossom and change of our, our culture. And if you don't mind, I'd like to slow down and you are the mushroom guru. And I also know that James Fadiman, who said that, you know, you really need as a trip sitter, an incredibly light touch. Mm -hmm. I'd like to know about how you personally are just present, soulful, sacred, and wonderful in the way you trip sit and then how you got your, your name. Well, for me, trip sitting, I think, is a um, it's a very empathic experience that you really need to be able to be in touch with the emotions that people are feeling when they're going through a mind altering experience, because sometimes that person won't even be fully aware of the own ex- you know, emotions and, and, and what their own that they are themselves feeling at that time. So being able to look at a person and even though they say, Oh yeah, no, I'm fine. I'm great. But they've got this like panic look on their face and they're breathing really deep and fast. And like, yeah, you need to make sure that they're calm and and slow their breathing. But it's really about creating, I think, a presence of trust about making an environment where people feel safe and calm and they're not worried about outside uh, experiences or, you know, some, some random guy from the bar walking through into the say, hey, what's going on here, guys? You know, that could 
shatter a whole experience. So it's it's definitely for being a trip sitter, it's about allowing them to experience what's going on. I don't think a lot of people really want to have, you know, deep in-depth conversations while they're going through their first or even second experience. They may be going through a lot of stuff, but that's all going to be introspective inner monologue. And so that what you're really doing is you're there to make sure that they have water, that, you know, the fire is, is tended, that there are uh, no medical issues, um, that, that a lot of preparation beforehand is very important so that you're not rushing around to grab something or that you forgot something. Again, that dispels the illusion of control and that while you're under these, uh, under the influence of these substances, you are very suggestible. And so even the littlest thing can set somebody down a negative path. So I think a lot of it's about, like I said, being empathic, being a good planner and being confident about what you're doing, um, no matter what happens about being able to stay calm and collected and show people that they're okay, even though that inside they may be panicking and going, going nuts. And a few of the details, if you don't mind going over, because I've had some people ask about temperature shifts. So it seems that what psilocybin is doing is that it's just causing a lot more energy. So you're you're using your body energy to activate the entire brain and your actual body temperature drops a little bit. Are you do you do any interventions to make sure people are definitely warm for the process? It's more just keeping a healthy environment that as long as it's not too cold or too hot to be comfortable for a sober person, I think that they'll still be safe. The The temperature shift, though, I'm sure is noticeable. Uh, it, they, they probably aren't going to experience a lot of discomfort or a lot of mood shift unless it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. In, in a hot, humid jungle, you know, people still do ayahuasca retreats and that sort of thing. So yeah, think, interesting. Yeah. Now, what about the sanctuary of the space? Do you use a lot of mind, mindfulness in the space that you are? And I'm curious, do you sage or is that a practice that you do ever between um, having? I love incense. I do believe that the, the smell of the environment is is absolutely part of the setting and that the environment can vary. I think that Many people, if you ask them if they have experience, they will do it by themselves in their homes, which I think is good because it's a setting where you feel comfortable, you feel safe and secure. So it gives you that that mindset that, that you want for when you're doing this kind of thing. I think even being able to, as a trip sitter, if you're doing one-on-one, you can go to somebody's home and as long as they're comfortable with you there and you in their space, that can work. So the, the sanctity of the location isn't as important to me unless there is something that is out of control in that environment. Um, that if they're going to have kids running around in the envi- in the background or the dog barking or something like that, I don't think it's a it's a good place. But I, I know people will and have tripped anywhere, <laughs> anywhere and everywhere. So yes, my ideal location would be out in the woods, somewhere or on the beach, somewhere very much connected with nature because I think that uh, most psychedelics really connect you with the, with nature and the organic structures and the, the colors and smells and sounds are very conducive to a, a positive experience. And I also just want to mention that I know of a call center that got developed by the Fireside Project, which I believe the phone number is 1-800-FIRESIDE, and they have people on call to answer if you need support if you're having a bad trip. So is that does that sound correct? It sounded like you were nodding, like you've heard of the Fireside Project. Um, I have heard of them. I, I have not used it service myself, but I think that anything that's you tell somebody that this will make you feel better 
will probably make them feel better. Right. Um, I think maybe everybody who does this thing has their own kind of trick. I will often ask somebody, what was their sort of favorite childhood treat? Do you like chocolate milk? And like, if they had chocolate milk when they were a kid, I give it some chocolate milk. Um, if they're having a bad experience because it's delicious, you know, sweet, cool, soothing, brings back a lot of visceral, visceral sort of memories, sense memories from the past and can often cool, calm people down quite a bit. And, and Wow, that's a really cool tip. And I loved chocolate milk as a, <laughs> as a kid. And after giving birth, that's actually something that I, I craved. So I can really see how that would work. Well, this is the thing. It's like in what I've done on this podcast and the people that I've talked to, sometimes the bad trips really help people long term. Have you had to sit with people through that really difficult process and uh, allowed it more than redirected? Absolutely. I definitely think there are two camps of, of thought when it comes to the bad, the bad experience, the bad trip. And that is to one, try to divert them away from that and to try to bring them back to um, the sort of calm sort of group feeling. Um, and the other is to let them experience it, which I am definitely much in the second camp where um, most of the time when you are experiencing something like that, that's because you need to, that that is something that is in your mind, that that is maybe something you're actively afraid of, even if you're not willing to admit it or see it in a conscious sense, your, your unconscious mind is going to hammer you with it, which is why I think the intention is very important that, that people need to think about whether or not they want to do this kind of therapy. If you are going to do it recreationally, people just, you know, they pop pills, they get high and they do whatever they want. But if you're going to do a sort of deep introspective dive, you need to be aware of any sharks that are going to be in that water. You are going to know your own past traumas. You are going to know what you are most afraid of. Are you today anxious? Are you uncomfortable being home alone? Do you, you know, or do you feel depressed, sad, angry for no reason whatsoever? Like these are all dangerous signs that you don't want to maybe dive into this right away. Or if you're okay with these experiences and, and if you were willing to take them and learn from them, you may really need this experience. I think so many people are too afraid to experience their own demons that, that it becomes very even more traumatic, that unless you are able to help them unpack these experiences and sort of keep them, you know, from hyperventilating or from you know, hitting themselves or, you know, doing something out of control, which it would be unlikely, but could happen. You should be able to process your own life and your own experiences and, and deal with them. I think that's vital. I just um, made a TikTok where I was referring to Bill Richards' flight instructions. Um, and in those flight instructions, which is a preparation for the experience for a lot of the studies that they were doing at Johns Hopkins and NYU, you know, they talk about look at the monster in the eye, dig your heels in, you know, and say, get out of my mind. If there's a door, open it. If there's a stairway, climb. Is that, it's like, go, like, go deeper. And you're given the opportunity, it seems to go as deep as you want. So is that sound? Absolutely. I mean, one of the, the primary functions of the psychedelics is it drops the default mode network, um, which is basically what is responsible for, you know, a lot of our personality and who we think we are, our own self-image. And so when we are able to get away from our own preconceived notions, we're able to, to look at our lives and we're able to look at the things that have happened to us with a very different perspective, which is, I think, why it, it propels people forward in their therapeutic journey, because 
Otherwise, you have to get through all of the, the stuff that the default mode network puts up in the first place. You have to get through your own personality, your own vanity, and your own self-preservation instinct to block off these horrible experiences that you had. Because if you think about them every single day, you won't be able to sleep, you won't be able to live. So it's taking something like a psychedelic drug allows you to break through a lot of barriers that would just take time otherwise. And would you mind going and getting a little vulnerable for us and telling us the difference in your personality and identity that you had before you committed to this path and what it looks like now, who you, who you are now as the mushroom guru? Sure. I remember sort of being ma experience where I had an epiphany. I was at the uh, full moon festival in um, Thailand, in the, in the islands, Hadron Beach, and at the, ca- the kangaroo bar up looking at everything. And I was dancing and having a great time. And then I went and sat down and had a um, little bit of mushroom shake and was relaxing. And um, somebody came up to me and said, hey, you know, you're kind of freaking people out. And I'm, I was so shocked and surprised. I'm like, what? What's going on? It's like, because I, I was dancing and I guess I, I was maybe a little wild in my gesticulation and uh, maybe some group of uh, more sedate tr- uh, tourists were a little shocked and, and, and worried about it. And I turned to the guy and I was just like, well, that's not my problem that I I'm having fun. I'm a good person. I didn't you know, growl at them or make any threatening motions. So, you know, if they're afraid, that's about them, not about me. Oh my God. Good and, job. Yeah. And, and one of the things that, that had really been a horrible problem for me in my life was self-esteem. I had not had a lot of financial success in my life personally, and I had issues with my family rejecting me and just being downright mean sometimes and uh, me having to separate myself from them. And again, that made me question, like, was I doing something wrong? Was I the one who makes people scared? Because Again, self-esteem is I had issues where I'd walk down the street and I would see people cross the street and I'd think that they were afraid of me. And so this particular moment made me realize that I can do everything every day to make people not afraid or to make other people happy, but then I'm going to completely compromise who I am. That the only thing I can do is live my life as a good person, to be honest and kind and generous and to just do good things every chance I get. And then I don't have to worry about what people think of me. So at this point in my life, I've reached a sort of dangerous point where I really don't care what people think of me. And um, it sort of annoys my partner sometimes because I can say things that are too honest, but I really am always going to be honest and who I am and genuine. And I think that's really what the most that mushrooms have brought to my life that that psilocybin has given me is that just the, the love of myself. And the confidence that who I am is is a good person and that if other people don't see that, then they either have their own problems or they just don't know me well enough. So I'm okay with it. That was such a great example. And I could see you on a TED stage telling that story because I think it's really relatable. Like what, I mean, definitely many people in that situation would have left. They would have left and gotten hurt and felt awkward and taken it on. And so, I mean, that is a perfect example of freedom. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. It's, it's been one of my favorite experiences in my life. It's definitely changed me quite a bit definitely put me on the track to where I want to be now. Yeah. That self-love thing is just really, you don't know that you don't have it until it's 
you know, and it's just really remarkable to me how the mushrooms um, do that. Can you uh, share with us maybe some of your stranger opinions on how you think the mushroom wants to work with humanity? And I, I can definitely share with you some of my more unpopular thoughts. Um, I do love the spiritual connection that, that a lot of healers and trip sitters have to the medicine. And I, I love how protective they are of it and this whole community. But I also do feel that a lot of them are more healer and provider centric and not thinking about the recipient and the patient as much. And, and what I mean by that is that they are very concerned with making sure that we honor the, the ceremonies and that we honor the, the religions that have uh, used these in the past. And I totally 100% agree with that, that we have to honor those that came before us. We have to build upon their knowledge, but I don't believe any of those previous cultures want us to restrict access and that only one group of people should be allowed to deliver this medicine. I think that there are, you know, hundreds of millions of people in our country um, you know, tens of millions, which are suffering from addiction and depression. And if we don't allow them to have an entry point that's comfortable for them, they won't enter the, the, the system at all. They won't join our, our collective. They won't try this medicine because if you see shows like Stephen Colbert, you know, the, he announces that psilocybin is being used for, for, you know, for treatment. And he shows pictures of cats with spinning eyeballs because that's the, the mainstream mentality of what psychedelics are is that this this hippie sort of woo-woo science and so when you have people who are doing very spiritual and very i don't know how to say it the, the very spiritual sort of ceremonies there's a lot of the country that are going to be very turned off by that mm -hmm. and so i believe we really do need the clinical maps solution we need these more spiritual guides because everything in between is going to match all of the customers, all of the, the patients that are going to come to us looking for healing. And if we don't have every single sort of component, every single peg in that, that spectrum covered, we're going to leave a part of the population exposed to suicide and depression and, you know, being marginalized that I notice in the community today that there is not a lot of talk about, you know, treating people in minority communities or treating folks who are in the LGBTQ plus community, that most of the focus is on treating wealthy people who can spend a thousand dollars per treatment. And again, that's why I keep focusing on the disparity in this. And I keep coming back to the same topics that we need to find a way to treat large amounts of people. And so we need to train large amounts of people very quickly in all varieties of way to treat this, to, to use these these wonderful, amazing medicines. Yeah, we're in a really, in some way we're advanced and in other ways we're so incredibly archaic. As a, a nurse, as an experienced nurse, I, I feel like the way we diagnose people with mental disorders is as basic as going to the DMV. When if you start to research like a, you know, a disease like bipolar, how much it will mimic PTSD. I mean, we have such flat diagnoses that people are, telling themselves that, that they are mentally ill and they'll have this repeating framework and it, we just need a whole kaleidoscope of more light color and availability and instead of being just slapped on with this all these 
illnesses when we know that our foods are causing inflammation in the brain mm-hmm. and our behaviors and then alcoholism is so acceptable and you know I, and we freely give these people diagnoses while they still continue to drink on a daily basis it's just that it is so insane mm-hmm. yeah no i completely agree that it's we need a, a more whole body whole life sort of answer that uh we can't just give people a medication to treat an illness that's caused by their their diet without changing their diet otherwise you're just creating a you know a perpetual patient so i think that can be attributed a lot to the way we run our economy and how corporations kind of dominate everything and that really money is the main pushing force for most things and I hope there are going to be more organizations like Mind Lumen and uh, the, the the billionaire who's building this city that's going to supposedly have a, you know everybody's equal and it's going to all run on renewable resources and all that. I'm I'm fascinated to see how that goes. Do you know if there's going to be mushrooms available in that little city? <laughs> uh, I would have to you know imagine there was. I don't think that you would be able to to go without it. <laughs> but you know it, it's it's thinking about what we can do in the industry about, um, you know, matching the broader that method where nobody uh, in the company makes less than five times the, the yes. CEO, um, making sure that everybody has access to, to the medicine and that we don't just keep it restricted to these super posh high-end retreats and mm-hmm. um, make sure that there's a lot of options available for people to treat themselves. I think people are very concerned about the dangers of this drug. And I do admit that there are some dangers, but people have been using psychedelics for literally thousands of years. And um, there has been no major epidemic or mass deaths or anything like that. That I think truly mostly people are just afraid of the discomfort that can come with taking psychedelics and having their whole lives and, and all their secrets exposed to them and having to deal with it all at once. It's very, it can, that can be very traumatic for people who aren't ready for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, what about you? I know that these really deep experience are ineffable, but did you have some that you can kind of share on maybe higher doses that really led you to looking at that stuff? I am a bit of a psychonaut. I've I've tried many different psychedelics. I've gone up to like, I think five or seven grams at a time. In Jamaica, they do, um, the indigenous Rastafarians do ceremonies that can last, you know, 10 to 12 hours where they'll go through the whole night. And I created an extraction that's basically just it's a sort of a citric extraction and um, it allows you to, to take it over long periods of time uh, without having any stomach distress. And it keeps the, the experience fairly, fairly low that there's a lot of psilocin rather than psilocybin in it. And so it's, it's a sort of a more mellow, not psychedelic experience. I like to go for those rather than the, the rather than being shot into space, I try to keep a, a nice arc and, and then come back down. So I'm working in extraction right now. Um, one of the ideas that we have is a ceremonial sort of chocolate where you have a like a pyramid shaped chocolate and you can snap off the top and, you know, you eat that. And then an hour later, you snap off the next and, you know, you can ramp up from, you know, two grams to three grams to five grams and then have a, a full uh, sort of ceremonial, deep, intense experience. But I don't know if that is as necessary as more repeated use. I think that regularly diving back into this at minimum every six months, 
every month or three months is, is I think, better um, because it, it really keeps your endorphins up. It, it allows you to have a clear mind if you're if you're having any problems in life. You have a, a you know less time before you have that real mental check in, and I think it helps give you sort of a um, the maintenance, the psychological maintenance that you need. So I'm less about high doses than repeated use. Yeah, that's re- I'm really glad you said that. And what do you feel about Terence McKenna's, you know, because he had said that ayahuasca was really about the earth and waterfalls and movement and this mother energy. And the mushroom was really about outer space. And I never could really quite under, understand that because to me, it, it does feel very earthy. Well, what's your opinion there? Um, I have never my, tried ayahuasca myself. Um, I have tried DMT. So I, I, I know a similar kind of experience, but I can't really know what that's like. Um, but for me, yeah, psilocybin connects me to the earth. Um, that, that these things grow in the earth. They consume the dead. They help our um, ecosystem stay alive, that they create the, the network of mycelium between the roots of the trees so that they survive. Um, so much more I could go on. Yeah, I just, I think that, it's important that we that we keep experimenting with this stuff and we keep moving forward. I think I maybe lost the question there. No, that's that's amazing. I, I really appreciate it. Can you tell us about how you may be teaching people to grow or what have you tried as far as like smaller, easier packs and you know, because you're really into that um in, Absolutely. in the legal arena. I very much in, in, like I said, the, the camp where I want people to get the medicine in their hands. And the, the easiest way for, for me to see that is by teaching people how to grow. And so that was where the mushroom guru sprouted from was that um, I had learned uh, a very simple technique that without a lot of fancy equipment, you don't need a flow hood. The most expensive thing you would buy would be um, a pressure cooker um, and you can grow your own. Um, that really you can, as long as you can sterilize everything, you can bake something in an oven, uh, pressure cook some grain, you can, you can grow. And so my main focus recently has been uh, teaching people how to uh, get into mycology. That's amazing. Do you have a website that you'd like to share with us? Or? Um, I do have one uh, that's being built. Uh, it's not quite ready yet. It's under construction. It's um, mushroom.guru. Um, so that, that should be up in, in about a month. Um, but uh, you can find me on TikTok. I'm at mushroomguru. I'm also on, uh, oh goodness, Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat. So um, if you have a social media and you want to learn how to grow mushrooms, please reach out and let me know. Thank you. And then my last question is if there's anybody out there struggling that you would suggest getting started, do you suggest to people on starting slow on microdosing or finding a way to the path or what, what do you tend to encourage? Absolutely. If people want to try this on their own, I think they should. I don't think there's really too much to be afraid of. Um, I think growing is a fairly large step. Uh, it's um, It does require some commitment. It's going to cost you a couple hundred bucks at least to get into buying everything that you need. But that uh, growing your own and, and trying that experience is, is very, very it's very deep and, and emotional for me at least. I, I changed my life um, that I, I not only was able to help myself, but then that's what turned me into helping other people and, and trying to bring this out there to, to the masses, I guess, so to speak. I would also say try to find groups. 
um, don't necessarily always do this alone, um, that, that connecting with other people and um, finding out how to maybe do this a little safer and with um, some instruction is definitely good. Um, but if you're looking to get started, um, there's plenty of companies out there like, uh, you know, there's Monster Mushrooms in Colorado and a bunch of other places where you can um, buy grain bags and you can get yourself some, uh, some spores, make yourself some liquid culture and but just read. Um, the shroomery.org is a great resource for old techniques and things like that and just research YouTube. Well, thank you so much for coming on here. You know, I just started like the other day, uh, I reached out to the the women of Santa Cruz because we are legal to cultivate uh, cultivate here. And I was like, I want to start a group. And in 24 hours, we had 200 women join and wow. we had our first um, Zoom meeting. And our ideas are to, you know, stand strong politically, keep together as women and to in the, um, start making stickers the psychedelic women of Santa Cruz sell them for 25 so that we can um, donate supplies and teach people how women how to grow in the spring. So I'll, uh, I'll keep you in touch on how that goes. But I just mentioned that because you said start forming groups. This is something that you can do. Hey, I'm interested in this. It's, it's legal in my county. Like let's do who's the who else because I feel like as a culture, we're really used the last two years have made us really isolated. And I think that we have actually forgotten how much we adore, appreciate, and love good community. So find your community. Don't be afraid to start it, and we'll stay on the political forefront. So thank you so much for all the work that you're doing with Prop 109 and the work that you're doing with Growing, and it was just an honor to have you here. Thank you very much. It's been an honor to be here. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening. I know that the last two years, a lot of us have grown to be hermits and I'm deeply missing community. So my course that starts December 10th is really going to facilitate that in an arena where we microdose and do identity recreation. So I'd love to gather six more women for this amazing opportunity. But if you're a person that doesn't wanna do group work, that's totally okay. Please send me an email. I can help you get started on your own deep dive into microdosing and rediscovering who you are and who you wanna be based on an inner loving being, not based on what everyone else thinks of you. It is time to live your truth.